everybody. You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Two Towers edition. Yay! Before we get going, though, I do need to do today's Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness, the PCAA. And so I am going to do that right now. This, of course, is part of the show where I choose a patron who gives at the amount that I can do this and say how awesome they are. So, Jacqueline, you're awesome. You're beautiful. You're charming. You're witty. You're intelligent. It would, basically, I'd have, I, I, I would need Rajay's thesaurus. Rajay's two to express how amazing you are. But I don't have it, and so my vocabulary fails me. Jacqueline, just take my word for it. You're awesome. And that concludes the Patreon Choice of Awesomeness. Or whatever I was, I called it. Patron Choice Awards of Awesomeness. Yeah, that's it. Yay. Nathan. Jake. Yep. Mm-hmm. Movie. Bad. If you can call it a movie. What would you call it? A bad movie. A bad movie. (laughs) Rats, you caught me. (laughs) Cornered. (laughs) Oh boy, um, folks. I was, I was disappointed by this movie. Yeah, I just, I thought it was gonna hold up much better. Yeah, me too. I brought. You guys gotta remember. The movies were my introduction to Lord of the Rings. I liked the movies. So you've got some I real nostalgia for this stuff. Because of movies. Mm. Like and so yeah, I've got nostalgia for it. When you think about Two Towers, when I think about Two Towers, I think, oh yeah. Hashtag Helms Deep. Helms Deep, exactly. Like, yes, Helms Deep is awesome. Yeah. I mean that's basically what you think. And then you think, oh yeah, and I'll forgive all that other crap. Yeah. And then you get into it and it's like Oh my goodness, what a mess. A, there's a lot of other crap. B, Helm's Deep, I mean, it's fine, whatever, but... It's like, what are we going to do with Frodo and Sam? Have them spin their circles and then take have Faramir like, grab them and take them all the way back to square one so their journey's meaningless? A fun fact about Jake, he does call tires circles. He goes to the place and says, can you put some more circles out of my car. What did I say? <laughs> you just said they spin their circles. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Second fun fact about Jake, he is four years old. <laughs> no, what I meant was that, like, they, uh, they, they go in circles. They go in circles. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, I mean, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Man, that's twice you got me. <laughs> You're racking up those points uh, this time. Ready right? to pounce. <laughs> <laughs> so. No, but you're absolutely right. This whole movie is about walking in circles and spinning wheels until the two things that they need to happen can happen. What's the second one? You got me. <laughs> you got me back because <laughs> there's one thing that needs to happen, which is Helm's Deep. That's it. And like, with Isengard, I guess. Gandalf needs to, we need to get Gandalf back from the dead. Helm's Deep needs to happen. And in order to do that, you need to introduce everybody that has anything to do with Helm's Deep. And, okay, so let me say this. I thought I was going to like this movie better than I did because I remember really liking it because the Helm's Deep stuff did just simply seem awesome. And, boy, I guess we said this last time, but 
I have a lot of sympathy for all the problems that they ran into. The, the well, timeline. It's a lot of it's timeline. Yeah. Okay, that's where you're going to. Yeah. The, 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 the timeline lines up in a weird way. If you're going to be intercutting tor- between these stories, you have to decide where the climaxes are and how it's all going to play off against each other. And that creates some real problems because actually. You can't deal with. You can't go to Shelob's lair. Yeah. And so what are you actually going to do with Sam and Frodo? Because for the timeline to work, they really have almost nothing to do besides tame Smeagol. Well, and so, so, okay, solution number one that you think of is compress the timeline. Who cares? Make him get to Shelob earlier. Problem with that is you're going to have a double climax. And so then the nerds yep. say, okay, well, actually, Helm's Deep was just one chapter. So why don't you just make it smaller so it's not such a climax? And it's like, please. Guys, come on. Come on. It's Helm's Deep. Everybody, like, when I, when I, when I heard as a nerdy kid or, or nerdy whatever I was when they announced they were making these movies, it's like exactly. a couple things that I want to see. A Balrog and Helm's Deep. I mean, really, those are the two things that any boy is going to remember. And, and, and if he has to choose one, I mean, it really... It is just the one like Helm's Deep is the iconic scene from that book. As Mm -hmm. as an adult, you read through it and you're like, okay, well, who cares? But for any boy who's ever had that story read to them or who has read it themselves as a preteen or young teenager, Helm's Deep is it, man. It's so cool. Orc heads are flying and it's like a medieval battle. And it's the closest Tolkien comes to just giving you some action. Aragorn jumps outside of the gate to fend people off. All of those things are actually in the book, you know? Like, yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing else that comes close in the book in terms of just giving you They forget about action. Gandalf and they're gonna make their last ride as men into, the, like all that stuff is just awesome. And then Gandalf shows up and we have another you catastrophe and- Maybe the best one. I mean, yeah. after that, all the other you catastrophes, arguably not the ring being destroyed, but you know, like the- the Battle of Pelennor Fields is just Tolkien doing Ooh. at length and with really highfalutin, boring language, what he already did perfectly at, Helm's, at, Deep. at Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep is the coolest chapter in the book. Everybody remembers the name of the chapter and they remember that it's the coolest chapter. I don't know. When I say everybody, I mean boys. Who I don't, who knows why girls even read Lord of the Rings. Eowyn, man. Yeah, Eowyn, man. Yeah, well, we'll have occasion to talk about her. Well, I guess we'll be able to talk about her, the movie version of her, a little bit today. And boy, that will be like stabbing ourselves in the ears with pencils. Yeah. Um, unpleasant is what I'm trying to say metaphorically there. <sighs> so, no, they couldn't do Small Helms Deep. They were contractually obliged the second they took this IP and decided to adapt it to do Helm's Deep a huge justice set piece. It has to be big. It has to be the coolest thing we've ever seen. It has to push technology to our to its limits. It has to it's, marshal thousands of extras. And Helm's Deep is why Peter Jackson wanted to do Lord of the Rings in the first place, guys. That's the other thing you've got to really realize about this. Like, if you're a guy like Peter Jackson, the reason you take Lord of the Rings is because you're fully justified in creating the technology to do a really cool siege scene which is what he's obviously interested in it's where his heart is in this movie his heart is a always with the men as opposed to the hobbits and elves and b it's in the heroic action stuff that's peter jackson you know he would have been perfect for conan the barbarian or something like that he loves that kind of stuff he could really care less about some (laughs) of the other elements of tolkien which is fine but honestly 
He doesn't care about the stuff Tolkien does best. He cares about the things that Tolkien often didn't spend a whole lot of time on. The Tolkien just brushes past because Tolkien's like, and then another action scene happened and you all know that, but what about this rock? It had moss on it. (laughs) It was cool. It was an ancient rock. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows how long it was there in this field. Right. Perhaps unseen hands moved it there and generations passed. We Mm. shall never know. Except for now Gandalf's explaining it. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? At length, like a tour guide. (laughs) I'm like a bus in Hollywood or something. (laughs) Which actually makes you sympathetic to Jackson's trope of ah yes now we've come to Mos Eisley yes Gondor city of king you know every time they get to the place they announce it which in Tolkien they actually do so you're not not doing Helm's Deep you're not making it small you're not making it short you nerds that suggest that that's even an idea don't understand money movies people store storytelling like who wants a small helm to deep if you're going to do it do it i mean the only real solution if you're not if you're going to do it small is is to cut it out i mean another option would be contrive a structure that moves it to the very end which is kind of which is basically what they did i guess but it sure feels contrived and like we're just working really hard to make it feel like there's enough movie and story here to justify this battle well but the point of this entire rant was to establish the fact that they did have all these problems. They did. Like, you have some real structural problems, and they're very hard to solve. And people who say, eh, Fellowship is the best one. Fellowship was a relatively easy adaptation. You could just film that book, and basically they just cut out some parts from that book, and they filmed it, and it worked. They did some clever and interesting and some not-so-clever things. We talked about that last time. But Fellowship's a super easy adaptation compared to these other two books. Yep. I mean, the fact is, Tolkien also, he's not always interested in plot. He's not always interested. He's not really interested in character. He's just interested in moments and scenes and lore and setting. And Tolkien's just like, he defies adaptation. So then the nerds say, eh, well, just don't make a movie. Okay. Okay, fine. Don't watch a movie. Yeah. But, they, but, they, they, but don't deny they, us. They made one. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to do it, can we talk about how you may, you might do it? What I think that they probably should have done is actually taken us to Shelob and have the big, fight with Shelob actually intercut with Helm's Deep. Deep. That's that's actually the way to structure it so that you have two big climaxes for each story. Well, then what you can do is you can have, you know, if you see, there's a great way to set that up where it looks like Sam and Frodo are making it and it looks like Aragorn and the army at Helm's Deep are getting defeated and then we flip them at the same time, right? We see our friends over here celebrating and then we see Sam morning dead frodo Mm -hmm. that's being carried off by orcs and oh no over here we think yay hope over there we think no everything's everything's terrible terrible, and that's where it really matters because that's where the ring is and yeah who cares if these guys (sighs) so that's one way to do it i can understand why they didn't do that because that is asking a lot of the audience to have two huge emotional climaxes like you could see how they could detract from each other you know having sam's heroism against shelob intercut with the you catastrophe of gandalf showing up it's like it's it's probably too much you can imagine how a star wars movie you know those endings there they always have three things going on at the ending you could you could imagine how it could be done mm-hmm. but usually with star wars the way that george lucas did it in the good old days of the prequels and those last couple ot movies 
one of the stories would be the emotional one that you cared about. And then the other story would be like the Gungans. Semi-comic relief. Yeah. It's like, here's the duel of the fates where everything's on the line. And then here's Jar Jar screwing around. He's got a gun attached to his foot. And then here's Anakin not really in any real danger, just learning how to fly a spaceship and having fun and doing something for the kids. Or shoot, here's Harrison Ford playing hijinks with these shield base operators. Yeah, but really that it's, it's, it's an action scene as extended foreplay with Princess Leia. I mean, it's, it's a relationship. It's it's, it's the two of them enjoying each other's company and flirting with each other as much as anything. While they save the day and kill bad guys. While they save the day and kill bad guys because that's what one does. And then it's Lando in a fun dogfight type situation. Yeah. And sure, they all have their own dramatic moments and peaks and valleys. But the real drama is always Luke and the Emperor. And it's the pace and tone is different. For yeah. Reason. And so you can imagine how, especially if you tried to do three, like if you tried to have Tree Beard and his dudes busting up, the Rohirrim showing up to save the day, and Sam fighting Shelob. Okay, tree beard. We don't care that much about that. Could be kind of a fun slapstick. That that could be the the yeah. pressure release one. But also, you know, they get a lot of mileage in the movie as it is out of tree beard busting up, being cool, and let's watch all the iron machinery stuff get washed away. Like this is a big moment. So you're yeah. gonna diminish that one so that you can make Shelob cooler. So you, these are the kind of choices that they had to make, and I can have sympathy for the fact that they were difficult to make and maybe impossible without really changing the story mm-hmm. a lot, which wouldn't have made the nerds any happier. Yeah, Their solution is basically always, we are going to contrive a character reason to delay things until such time as the climaxes can happen. So it's going to be like Theoden's not happy with Aragorn or not willing to listen to good counsel or there's bickering there, there's mm-hmm. problems. It's going to be the stupid idiotic stuff with Faramir just randomly being a thug and then randomly deciding not to be a thug for for absolutely Mm -hmm. no reason. We're going to get that kind of stuff through the rest of these two movies where characters, you know, Frodo's going to send Sam away. And again, it's because they had a narrative problem. They needed to delay a climax. They needed to have Sam show back up for Shelob. Yep. And so we're going to have a character act out of character, be way meaner and stupider than they actually were in Tolkien or than we thought that they were before this happened yep that's just always their solution and it's kind of dispiriting watching it in this movie because all the characters are dumb and they suck theoden doesn't seem like a great king faramir is a punk and i mean it's the reason people don't what what I, what I, what I actually think they should have done is they should have come up with more things like that stupid wolf attack as dumb mm-hmm. as that is it's harmless and it's within the spirit of other things that happened in Tolkien, you know, just like random plot mechanics would actually be better yeah. than making these characters behave in weird or off-putting ways in order to justify the plot not moving forward. It's like Die Hard. You have all those characters that don't know how to handle a terrorist attack on a building. You have all those mean cops that are putting down John McClane and not believing him. There's like a series yeah. of characters that only exist to disbelieve John McClane and to make stupid decisions. So that McClane has to do more awesome things. Right. And you can do that once. It kind of works in Die Hard, I guess, although I do get pretty tired of it. Die Hard, actually, in between all the awesome stuff that you remember where he's diving off buildings, there's a lot of 
here's another stupid character making another stupid decision to justify the plot. Mm-hmm. You can occasionally do that, but I always think it's a pretty cheap trick to have a character behave more stupid than they actually would, more stupidly than they actually would in order to justify the plot. Yeah, if you're going to do that, just create a really stupid character who is always in character and have him float all over the place like Jar Jar Binks or Chip McGregory. Right, yeah, exactly. You can <laughs> you can actually set up a character that <laughs> is set up from the beginning. Like, oh, that's definitely what he would inevitably do. He would screw things up here. But that takes some doing because usually you don't want your characters to be stupider than your audience. Yep. If the audience is ready to believe your protagonist, then to create a bureaucratic jerk that won't believe them, it's just lazy writing. It's straw man creating. And this movie does a lot of that. And thanks for listening, everybody. Because I just yeah, there's really not a lot. I, I summed up everything that's wrong with this movie. I'm sorry, Jake. I should have I should have let you talk more. I didn't have anything more to say than that. I think I was just disappointed and had my nostalgia overwhelmed by the difficulty of even my kids. My kids loved Fellowship Mm -hmm. and my kids hated this movie, which really surprised me. I was not, I was expecting to like it and I was expecting them to like it. And I don't think they were keying off of me as I was watching it. I think a lot of it was just like... It's kind of boring. It takes a long time to get to the action scenes and stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, at the end of the movie, one of my kids was just like, look, Dad, I don't want to watch the next one because everything they did was just way cooler in my imagination. Mm -hmm. And I don't like what they did with, like, he was really upset by what what he did, what they did to Frodo and the ways they made Frodo sort of nasty and he's under the sway of the ring and almost has these like horror faces. They're coming, you know. Well, junkie Frodo is is obviously what Jackson's conceit is. I mean, I'm sure he thought of that explicitly. Like yeah. he's he's a drug addicted character and that's what the aesthetic's going to be. That's how I want Elijah Wood to play it. Yep. And a little bit of that goes a long way. Yep. And they give us more than a little bit of it. Yeah, and and it comes early like if if frodo's under the eye in mordor acting like that it makes sense like for the third movie and for the third book if he's getting more and more deranged as they get closer to mount doom that makes sense but to have him already have succumbed this quickly is i don't know it just makes for an unlikable protagonist a lot of the time yeah Well, let's talk through some of the elements of the movie. I think there's certain things that work really well that we just take for granted and aren't that delighted by now, but that, you know, played really well the first 40 times we saw this movie, chiefly among them Gollum. He works. He's fun. I don't want to say anything against him. Sounds like you could say something against him if you... No, I mean, I don't know. Gollum's one of the more challenging characters to read if you're reading out loud to your kids. It's a very distinctive performance and it's good. It actually surprised me in rereading the book that the distinction, the clear schizophrenic distinction between Smeagol and Gollum is there in the book. Yeah. Pretty explicitly. I always thought that Jackson Jackson that up just like he exaggerates everything. But actually Sam does overhear Gollum having, you know, Stinker and Slinker having a conversation, pretty much that conversation where Jackson starts to cut between between the two Gollums. That's in the book. Yep. It's, he didn't, he just found a way to tell it visually. In a way that was kind of fun. Yeah. I, I actually liked that. Yeah. 
The CGI doesn't quite hold up as well as it used to, but you can still lose yourself. It was still state-of-the-art at the time. What they do now that they didn't do then is they take a lot more care to make the grass depress as his feet, you know, like all the environmental factors. I think they've gotten better at either just animating those in or doing what it takes to manipulate the environment such that when you drop the CGI character in, when he touches a branch, it bends. And there's a lot of stuff once you start to look for it where, you know, Gollum's not actually impacting the environment around him. Unless it's a big, you know, he'll, when he's fighting with them, he'll he'll splash or he'll throw the blanket when he's fighting them. And that stuff's pretty seamless. But then I think about him at the very end when he's succumbing to the darkness and wandering around the woods by himself, he keeps grabbing branches and stuff and the branches don't move move or change. It's pretty seamless. I mean, you wouldn't, once, once, once I say that and you go and look, then you're like, oh, this doesn't work. But before I said that, didn't occur to me. You can just enjoy it. Uh, Thanks for ruining it, Nathan. You're welcome. Another thing that Tolkien actually doesn't do any better than the movie. The movie seems a little hand-fisted, but then you read Tolkien and you're like, oh, well, they basically did it. Theoden's redemption scene. The movie makes it straight demon possession. Like yeah. Gandalf's, draw. I will draw you out, Soraman, as a, somebody draws out a poison from a wound. Yeah, and then we actually see Saruman go sprawling. Yeah. Which is dopey as heck. But you read Tolkien and it's not that much more psychologically sophisticated than that. Yeah, it's not. I had always assumed that, oh, this is actually a character moment, but Jackson turned it into a demon possession. Well, it's kind of a subtler demon possession in in the book. Yep. What about Eowyn? Don't like her. I don't like her either. I don't really like her in Tolkien. I don't like her. and I think I like her better in the movies than in Tolkien and that. Well, we just recorded our Milan episode where we talked about how Milan was a much more sympathetic feminist heroine because she was, she had imperfections and she was striving to accomplish something and she wasn't just always right and pious like bad 90s feminist icons in movies were. That's what they essentially do to movie Eowyn. They give her some relatable flaws and desires and kind of humanize her in a way that I guess makes her work. But I don't know in both Tolkien and the movie, the fact that she falls in love with Aragorn is super lame. Yep. And the movie's going to give her that dumb sword scene. Yeah. Where she's practicing or whatever, fighting with Aragorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's dumb. Which all that dialogue, which I assumed was just like feminist Philippa Boyens and Peter Jackson. It's all from Tolkien. All the, yeah. I, what do you I wish, my thing. lady? To not to be put in a cage. Yeah, that's, that's Tolkien. That's just straight Tolkien, which is, we haven't actually recorded our booking episode on that. It'll be interesting to talk about that. I don't like it in Tolkien, but you can't accuse Jackson and his crew of making it more feminist or anything like that because... It's just the way it is. Just the way it is. By the way, can we can we just talk about Frodo's characterization again? Because... Not only is he under the sway of the ring, he actually attacks Sam. Like holds a sword to his yeah, like neck. Apparently Frodo and Sam are at the Battle of Osgiliath and mm-hmm. Nazgul show up, right? And Frodo's like going to take the ring to them and Sam tries to fight him back and then Frodo fights Sam and pulls a sword on him and is going to kill him. I Okay, I've been guilty of this. Like in, in, in writing our story podcast, The Ville, you, you want your characters to be three-dimensional. You want them to, you want to be willing to let your characters do 
the unlikable things that they w- would do. You, you want to follow the logic of the character all the way through. And so you let a character or you write a character is doing something unlikable here and unlikable here and unlikable here. And then you read the thing and you're like, oh, we've lost sympathy with this character. This didn't work. Like mm-hmm. I, as the author, always love all my characters because they're my babies. But anyone looking at this with any kind of freshness or objectivity is just going to be like, who is this person? I don't like this person. I think they make that mistake with Frodo and with Faramir specifically in this yeah. movie where we are assuming a lot of goodwill because we as the creators have goodwill because people bring goodwill from the books because we remember having goodwill yep. and then we're writing a scene here where they do something unlikable and a scene there and suddenly you put it all together and it's ugly. It's, 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 it's just unlikable. I remember George Lucas talking about Temple of Doom. That's his, that's his excuse. That's, that's the party line on Temple of Doom is we never set out to make a, make a dark movie that wasn't for kids. We just did a dark thing here and did a dark thing there. And then we got done. And it turned out it was pretty dark. We had to create the PG-13. I can see how I, I, I've had that happen. I, can, I mean, in the cases where it's happened to us, for the most part, I think we've said, oh, well, we that draft didn't that. quite work. Let's fix that and write another draft. We also haven't released an episode in almost a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that is the other thing. They... they you do when you watch the behind the scenes things about these movies you realize they were making them on the ground they were figuring out what was working you know they had fellowship they put it together and then they would have reshoots and bring people back you know we're still filming stuff like filming new material like we we did one big shoot and then we released fellowship of the ring and then we start to piece together two towers and we say okay we need to bring people back we need to do this we need to do that we need to redo that people don't understand the politics here so we're gonna dump some exposition like they're they're trying to just make this massive undertaking work mm-hmm. when you look at it from that perspective you do again have some sympathy like there's 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 a scene i think it's just in the extended edition which i i watched the extended i think you watched the regular two towers i did yeah which lucky Theatrical. you yeah so there's a scene where they just show a map Faramir's like, come here, Mr. Lieutenant guy. Let me show you. Now, there's a tower here, and that's not the other tower, but it's it's one of the two towers. And, uh, they're not, and th- this tower is related to this tower this way, and it's like completely, you can tell they filmed it just like, oh, shoot. People don't People even know don't what even the- People don't even know which two towers we're talking what about. What two towers are we talking about? And plus 9-11 just happened last year as we're releasing this, so yeah. should we rename it? <laughs> <laughs> I guess not, but let's explain these two towers. There's a, but I think in the regular cut, there's that scene where Galadriel communicates with Agent Smith. Mm, yes. And she's just like, now let's not forget that Sauron's against us, but he's teaming up with Sauron, and there's yeah. armies coming from these two sides. And if the elves don't help, then this whole quest stands on the edge of a knife. It kind of gets repeated again. There's a number of places where you can tell they got self conscious about the fact that, oh, people that haven't read the books aren't going to understand the politics. Like, how do the Rohirrim interact with Gondor? Like, yeah. what is this? And they were right, by the way. If you don't have those dumb, asinine scenes where people explain things that other people already would know it would be i don't remember feeling lost and i don't remember resenting that exposition dumps first time through yeah i mean it more or less worked for me or on me or both 
I mean, the nice Sorry. thing about something like this is at, at the end of the day, those are the good guys and they're good because they look like humans and they're handsome and beautiful. Yeah. Those are the bad guys. They've they got teeth and claws and monsters, yeah. monster eyes, and they want to kill the, the good guys. I hope that they don't do that. Yep. I hope the good guys kill them. So you can actually miss a lot of the nuance and it's fine. So we look at, we, we look back on this movie and we're pretty critical of it, but at the time audiences and critics alike praised this movie. It was 95% certified fresh and it had a 95% audience score. Well, the ability to generate masses of humanoid creatures in a big battle scene felt so new and so fresh and it's been done so many times since then. I mean, we hadn't seen anything on this epic scale since the 1950s big Bible epics like Ben-Hur where they, or, or the Ten Commandments where they literally spent millions of dollars and got thousands of people. Like a Cecil B. DeMille movie, they're just going to build Egypt. They're going to hire thousands of people to play the... Well, the closest thing we've actually got is, Sire, there's a stampede in the gorge. Yeah, exactly. Or... Uh, what we just talked about, or what we're about to talk about, I'm not sure which, uh, the snow battle scene in Mulan. Yeah, which is animated. Like, animation's been the closest thing to give us this kind of spectacle. Right. When you think about what the spectacle of the earlier 90s. It's Independence Day. Yeah. You can have, so some, some creepy crawly monsters or some mechanical things. But if you think about the last big, big battle epic what, that was really popular was Braveheart. And... That movie's cool and it's got some spectacle, but it's also like they hired a couple hundred Marines to dress up like Scotsmen and do the battle scene. And it's about as well done as anything yeah. like that could have been done, but it's nothing close to on the scale of what Peter Jackson was able to do in this movie. Yeah. And so it is true that 20 years hence, it does not feel revolutionary at all. We've just seen a million examples of this kind of thing. Every epic movie every Avengers movie, every, you know, this kind of spectacle is just routine now. Well, yeah. Avengers has basically made it cliche in and of itself. Avengers is going to end with, there's the glowy thing that we've got to stop from glowing. There's thousands of enemy troops, CGI beasties that have, um, that have massed and are charging at us and we've got to fight them. And you'd never seen anything like that before Two Towers specifically. Fellowship of the Ring doesn't actually have anything like that. So the battles have held, held deep. It was amazing. I mean, now I watched it and I'm like, oh, I wish it could be a little darker. I wish we could actually see less. Like this is so well lit and obvious. And there's such a more exciting version of this that you could do if, if, if you, were, you were trying. But that's completely unfair and uncharitable because they were what they were doing then was absolutely state of the art and guess what they didn't want to dial down the lighting because they wanted people to be able to see this awesome stuff that they had created okay time to do some lord of the rings uh critic trivia all right so of the three movies fellowship of the ring two towers and return of the king give me their critics scores on rotten tomatoes in order from worse or best to worst. All right. I'm going to go with the non-intuitive answer and hope that that's correct. I'm going to hope it's a trick question, actually. Obviously, the, the intuitive answer, I think, the conventional wisdom among fandom would probably be Fellowship of the Ring is the best, Return of the King is the second best, Two Towers is 
far the worst. And, you know, if you were going to go off of that, you'd put Fellowship of the Ring in the mid 90s. You'd put Return of the King maybe in the mid to low 90s. And then you'd say that Two Towers was like 89% or something like that. But I've, I've already revealed that Two Towers is 95. Right. And I th- still think Two Towers might be no. All right. Here's my final answer. Okay. I seem to remember at the time that Return of the King was absolutely acclaimed. People went gaga for it. I remember one guy, just like Kenneth Turin, famously grumpy Los Angeles Times film critic, gave a bad review to Titanic and James Cameron took out a full page ad in Variety to lambast him because James Cameron couldn't handle criticism the one person that criticized his movie while he was the king of the world and had the most successful movie ever made and it was critically acclaimed (laughs) even though that screenplay is garbage he couldn't handle that one person didn't like it i seem to remember return of the king being similar there was one guy one contrarian guy one or two that didn't like it and other than that it was like for a while it was actually a hundred percent so i'm going to say it's actually unless people have added reviews over the time over time i'm going to say it's at 99 or 98 Okay. Percent. I'm going to say Two Towers comes in second at 95, and I'm going to say Fellowship of the Ring. People weren't aware that a modern classic was being made. Critical mass hadn't quite snowballed. So people that were kind of grumpy and just didn't like fantasy could still just be like, ah, I don't like this that much because it's not the kind of thing I'd like instead of being browbeaten into liking it. So I'm going to say it's actually low 90s. Pick a number. Uh, let's say 91. Okay. So the correct answer is Two Towers wins at wow. 95. Turn of the King comes in second at 93. And Fellowship gets a 91. So you are almost right. right. I, I swapped Return of the King and Two Towers. Yep. But the audience scores tell an interesting story. I'm going to say Fellowship of the Ring, far and away the winner. Ties with Two Towers at 95%. And then Return of the King is... 86. 86. Interesting. Audience, not a fan of Return of the King. I mean, I think the audience still liked it, but... They probably... Holy cow. The numbers... Okay, so uh, let me give you the number of critic reviews and the number of audience reviews. Something is going on with Return of the King that I don't quite understand. Maybe you can make sense of it for me. 231 critic reviews of Lord of the Rings, 91%. 253 of Two Towers, 95%, and 273 of Return of the King, 93%. So a jump in 20 reviews each year, something like that, or each movie. Audience score for Fellowship, 95%, 1.36 million audience reviews. Audience score for Two Towers, 95%, 1.34 million Reviews, audience score for Return of the King, 86%, 34.7 million reviews. And what was Two Towers? One point. So the reviews jumped astronomically. 30 times. My guess. Many, some kind of campaign or some kind of. Yeah, it's exactly like how the Snyder fans lambast critics who don't like the Snyder movies or. What's the last big example that we've had? People campaign, you know, the fans saying, let's get Robert Downey Jr. an Oscar for his last time as Tony Stark. I think it was yeah, one of those. that and kind of thing. Or, or Ryan Johnson. For um, The Last Jedi. For Last Jedi. Yeah, it, I think it's exactly that kind of thing where I think, A, you have to remember 
the internet cut its teeth. Nerd culture, internet, like the whole culture of nerds reviewing movies and YouTube reviews and all that stuff. How old is Rotten Tomatoes? Rotten Tomatoes is, that's a fantastic question. Founded in 1990, launched in 1998. Yeah, the year of Mulan. So it was. it's only three years old in at Fellowship. It's f- five years old at Return. Yep. And at Cool News, which kind of launched the rise of the nerd revolution where nerds actually had some clout and mm-hmm. some say, 96. So arguably the first big nerd property where the nerds were really in conversation with the filmmakers and the filmmakers were saying, we're nerds and here's a video about how, and here's tons of special features about how we're just like you and, oh, you don't want Arwen in the movie? Okay, we'll take her out. The first time where the nerds really felt empowered was in fact, Lord of the Rings. And that's a really important thing to remember about these mm-hmm. movies. These movies were a game changer in terms of the way that studios interacted with their fan base. You don't have Sony bringing back Sp- Tom Holland's Spider-Man and giving him to Marvel. You don't have you don't have film geeks wielding as much power as they do. You, you know, you don't have JJ Abrams changing the trajectory of what Ryan Johnson did. You don't have the Snyder cut actually becoming a thing without Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is when it's not the first time that nerds had opinions, obviously, but it is the first time that they had the... Their opinion carried enough weight to yeah, actually impact yeah. anything. And the studios realized it's we not that we... turn this into uh, a promotional machine, actually. Yeah, exactly. We, we What we can we do can is... monetize this. Yeah. If we pay these guys or if we incentivize these guys, if we give them uh, some of these you know, nerd websites, we give them press cred and we give them behind the scenes, we give them access, we give them whatever, and lean into some of this, we can really galvanize, we could create fan events, we can let them create the fan events for us. Like, Yeah, I mean, it's it's really pretty crafty and pretty bad. What I mean, what for a minute there, it felt beautiful. I remember it, I was part of it. I wasn't like an important person, but I remember watching it, like, and it cool news, these websites, like it felt like, oh, we can collectively all be a part of this and you don't have to work hey, for a newspaper to review the power of the internet has allowed geeks from across the country to gain critical mass and actually have a voice and be able to yeah and, and that did feel true and i don't know maybe it still is but what's also happened is exactly what you said which is they realize oh we can just issue press credentials to these people we can invite them to our junkins we can fly harry harry Knowles, who started in it cool news to New Zealand to hang out with Peter Jackson. And suddenly we have a ready made PR machine of nerds that are just happy to be there and yep. just happy to be hanging with big celebrities and hanging with directors. You know, if we butter it up the right way, they'll defend us, you know, when we have to make tough decisions or when we have to make m- money decisions, if they feel like they're a part of it and have ownership of it, they'll have our back and they won't, They'll still go fill, put butts in seats. Yeah. We'll get the best of both worlds this way. And I think that the studios basically have, I mean, a lot of people still, yeah, you get nerds being brats and demanding release the other version of Star Wars, the Rise of Skywalker that never existed or. I mean, really, Snyder's the only person that they've. DC, they've been able to mess with. Yeah. But DC's made it possible by really screwing it up warner brothers has been terrible yeah i mean dc is everything that's bad about this system dc is 
oh, we we as a studio really believe in Zack Snyder, and then we're going to get cold feet, and we're not going to let Zack Snyder be Zack Snyder. And the 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 proof is in the pudding. The director's cut of Batman versus Superman is not great, but it is a cohesive. It actually interesting movie. It's a yeah. Zack Snyder movie, and if you don't like Zack Snyder, then you're not going to like it. And I don't really like Zack Snyder, and I don't really like it, but it works. It's a full movie. Whereas the the cut where they got cold feet because the internet decided it didn't like Zack Snyder doing this property is lame, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't have the the courage of its misguided convictions. Yep. I don't know. It's been a mixed blessing at best, but Peter Jackson... Is kind of responsible for it. he's one of the people who saw the value he's always seen the value with all those special features on the dvds like peter jackson's a very accessible presence mm-hmm. in a way that the only person that's really the, a precursor to that is steven spielberg who's always been a name brand who's well i mean it's let me, let me backtrack alfred hitchcock was actually the first person who figured out how to become a brand and a personality and a face you know mm-hmm. like here i am and then walt disney obviously mastered it but those guys were few and far between now everybody's expected to be that if you're gonna mm-hmm. play the game then that's one of the rules jj abrams has to be like available Zack snyder kevin feige kevin feige john favreau and dave filoni they're gonna make yep. a little show about how great it is working with each other and how much they love the fans and put it on disney plus and that's yep. that's really all that show is aren't we accessible aren't we cool isn't it fun? We're nerds just like you who just lucked into a dream job and we get to make this stuff. And and Filoni actually is, which is what makes that little so puff piece kind of charming, actually, yeah. and fun. Maybe Favreau is too. I tend to like John Favreau. Oh, I, I just think he's a savvy man, but he's, I really like him. He knows how to play the game well. He knows how else. to play the game well. And he's smart about people and using people and in ways that are smart and... At the end of the day, he feels, and this doesn't sound really dumb, but I think I've probably said it or alluded to it in enough places that in a lot of ways, he really is the spiritual successor in my mind of George Lucas, mm. who actually doesn't seem to care all that much about his stories. No. Well, and I'd say they're both the spiritual successors, uh, not successors, but what's the opposite? They both come out of Walt Disney, who I think yeah. was like that too. He's yeah. more actually at the end of the day. He was an entrepreneur. That's yeah. that's what he he enjoyed was pushing the technology and figuring out what the next big thing was. In fact, that seems like Favreau's just always angling for a way to play with other people's money to develop cool new technology and get ahead of the game and change the game. Like that's the kind of thing that he really likes doing. Mm-hmm. And he did it with the Jungle Book, and he did it with the Lion King, and he's doing doing it with the Mandalorian. That's cool and fun, and he's smarter about it than George Lucas because. He's playing with house money mm-hmm. and he is attaching, you know, the right people to his projects to help make sure that they succeed and are lovable. Even though I think both Jun- Jungle Book and Lion King are two flops as far as I'm concerned. They made money and people loved the Jungle Book and the Lion King was never not going to make money. So. Right. The interesting thing is uh, in today's world with the with nerd ascendancy and with Iron Man was the same thing for him, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With 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 relatability being key, someone like Favreau is the person who's actually going to get the keys to yeah. the kingdom. Whereas the generation before, it'd be some nerd like George Lucas, who obviously has no people skills and yeah. seems like an introvert. If, if he's not actually, he certainly acts like somebody who's on some kind of like the Asperger's spectrum or something like that. 
those were the guys, you know, nerds, nerdy little Jewish guys were the guys that pushed it forward before. Now it's got to be somebody who can actually kind of interact and have a style and a brand. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get somebody like Zack Snyder, who doesn't seem like a very talented filmmaker. But if you watch him, he and his wife, Deborah, are really good talkers, really good BSers. He, he, he puts on a good bro act. Yeah, I mean, it's a bro act, right? Like, if you're the kind of guy that is just like, I'm going to wear my trucker hat and smoke cigarettes and maybe have a couple of tats and watch MMA fights, and that's all Zack Snyder wants you to think he is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to work out on set with my actors because I'm into that thing because that's kind of cool. And Peter Jackson kind of paid the way. Hey, look, we're, I'm making a Hobbit movie. I'm just like a Hobbit. Actually, I'm just like you. I'm fat, not really that talented. I'd sit and drink tea and eat my potato chips and... I just got lucky and I'm I'm just happy to be here. Living the dream, baby. Living the dream. And I'm quirky and fun and I like horror movies and I can't come out of nerd culture and I'm stuck here now, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I hate you all. <laughs> here. <laughs> Here's some crappy Hobbit movies. Go away. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings made me a lot of money and it also fully determined my career path. So yeah, here's some Hobbit movies. <laughs> And it's also, you know, start around this the time this time. I don't know. I find this subject interesting. Sorry, folks, if you don't. But around this time, just the whole culture of the way that stars sold themselves changed. You know, stars used to be aloof. They used to be the gods that walked among us or that didn't walk among us. You know, Jack Nicholson is only going to do an interview every 10 years. You don't really know what he's like. You see him at a ball game or something like that you know it'll cut to jack nicholson or he'll be sitting there at the oscars wearing his sunglasses 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 at a ball game sunglasses and maybe even a ball cap right and it's the same thing for gene hackman for al pacino for de niro for all these guys but that's not how the chris pratt's and dwayne johnson's and Will well Smith's and then you have the guys that got caught in the middle of it either won it or made serious missteps right like Tom Cruise was pretty aloof, but then he realized he had to change. And so he jumped on Oprah's couch, but there was this thing called YouTube Mm -hmm. and that caused him some problems. Right. And that's one of the first viral videos. Like YouTube just hit at the exact right time. Everybody, the culture. Tom Cruise to get screwed by trying to make that transition. And then he retreated back into. Aloofness. Aloofness. But he figured out how to brand his aloofness and like now he's the guy that does his own stunts and he's the man that'll never age and he's yep. the nostalgia machine like he's he's found a way to make it play yep the, the guy that really moved from one to the other is robert downing jr i think he managed to turn himself into a family-friendly brand at exactly the right time and was his people or him or whoever he was very savvy about how he stepped from well, and I think we both read that interview that came out around the time of Iron Man 1, where yeah. Robert Downey Jr., who's always pretty transparent with interviews, just says, like, I am changing my brand right now. I used to be a bad boy, and mm-hmm. now I need to be a family man. So there are things that I'm not going to do anymore. Yep. And some of it feels moral. Some of it also just feels smart. Savvy. Savvy, whatever yeah. you want to say. I mean, yeah, some of it feels like, hey, I'm, I have kids. Also, I nearly ruined my life with drugs and whatever else. And some of it is just like, also, uh, the world doesn't look too kindly on grown men that don't grow up. 
Right. I've aged out. Like I've, I, yeah. I'm, I'm about to turn. I'm, I'm around 40 now. I can't keep doing the, sexy the bad boy. I'm not the young guy, yeah. bad boy anymore. I can't be that. And I realize that. Marvel's my ticket. So is Mark. Yep. Now you see, uh, compare him to somebody like Chris Evans, who, because of the system that he operates in, has to do the relatability thing. Like his PR machine oh is making, goodness. trying to make him relatable. This guy, obviously, he would love to be, just reading between the lines here, folks, but indulge me. I think Chris Evans would love to live in the 1970s environment where he's hanging out with Pacino and De Niro and all these guys, and they don't have to give a crap about what anybody thinks. What anybody thinks. They don't give interviews. They don't act like they're happy. They don't sign autographs. They don't do little Instagram videos where they're being all relatable and showing you their workout routine. Or yep. no, they just they just show up and do their thing. They're yep. artists. What you get then with Chris Evans is well, okay, since I have to do this, I guess I'll be a jerk and be a brat and be political. Right. Somebody and like Emma Watson or, or uh, Harry Potter just did it the other day. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe. When, when he reacted to J.K. Rawlings' thing. Yeah. So did Cho Chen or... Oh, uh, yeah. Whatever her name is. Uh, yeah, that's what a lot of... That's how a lot of them is. cope is, as long as I... As long as I'm stuck with having to stay in the public eye and portray a certain kind of person even when, when I'm not making a movie... I'll bend it to my pet cause or to my politics yeah, and put it to work for me. Which I suppose I have, I, I don't usually agree with their causes, but I have some sympathy for them doing it that way, figuring out something to do with it because it would be difficult to be stuck in that position. On the other hand, you're getting paid millions of dollars to yeah hang around and pretend, play pretend. So yeah, suck it up and give us what we want. A lot of the, a lot of the guys that are just resigned to make, making fun movies tend to be the in my view the best at this sort of thing i think dwayne johnson is one of the best at this mm -hmm. and he just makes dumb fun movies chris hemsworth is pretty good at it and he just plays a dumb fun comedic bro mm -hmm. most of the time nowadays chris evans is terrible at it and he's really trying to be something now you know he's important yeah chris pratt not very good at it because he's stuck between being a having a couple of goofy dopey comedy shticks but also he's turned into a buff action star and he just can't seem to strike a balance that makes any real sense yeah well i also think he he uh, also ruined his marriage well yeah he, i i think that's 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 really one of the yeah there's two things number one he's stuck between being an action star and being a goofy lovable relatable guy and those things really don't work to, that well together number two he divorced the wife of his youth when she got too old, and I mean, I'm sorry. Nobody's got a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't be a relatable Christian everyman, which is what he tries he to was. portray himself as, yeah. and divorce your wife. You just, you can't do it unless you could upgrade to Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter. Is that what he did? Yeah. I haven't even paid That's attention. What he did. Yeah, that's lame. Pratt and Anna Ferris were a fun, goofy, quirky. Hollywood power power couple. It was good branding for them. Yep. If nothing else, they should have figured out a way to make it work for just for branding purposes. That's what I'm worried about here on this Christian podcast is branding. You know who can be aloof and make it work? Who's that? Keanu Reeves. Well, Keanu Reeves is just an idiot he's savant. An on a, or maybe he's a savant. He's I don't the chosen know. One, he, man. he is just the one. Yeah. He's the one. But Keanu Reeves just always feels like a real Zen master. Like he loves you and he doesn't have a lot to say. Like Keanu and Reeves has managed. He also to... has no idea 
how he got to be where he is, but he just keeps doing the things that come to him. Yeah, and he's just slightly dazed by his success. I, I think of all of them, Keanu Reeves is the one that, wh- whether that's savvy branding or just who he is, I, I buy it and I love it. I buy that it's just who he is. He's he's the most buyable, easiest yeah. to buy for me. It's just like, there is a guy who kind of really sucks, but keeps showing up to work and somehow has the, the right charisma or charm or doofusness that he's fun to watch on screen. He's also just really smart about the projects that he picks. Like, I'm not going to be that great in it. It's not really an interesting part for me, but this project, you know, John Wick, The Matrix, Bill and Ted, Speed, all these classic Keanu things. Even the movies that he tends to pick cameos for. Yeah, that Netflix. Seem to go well for him, right? He seems to pick the right one or the thing that really play, plays well. Yeah, I hope he doesn't play himself out too much. I hope he... It That's seems what like, the next year could feel like. We have Matrix, Bill and Ted, and another John Wick movie all coming in the next year, and maybe one other thing. And Marvel's item for something. Yeah. I forget what. Well, it felt like a little bit much with Toy Story 4 and John Wick 3... And the Netflix cameo, I think those all hit the same year. And that was a little bit much Reeves. He he needs to be, yeah. part of his charm is that he's kind of aloof and he just shows up every five years or 10 years and yep. does something crazy and fun. And that two towers, is why guys. the Two Towers <laughs> is a cinematic masterpiece. You can tell how excited we were to talk about this movie. <laughs> Listen, it was a bummer watching it. I think yeah. me and my wife stretched it over like three nights or something like that. It just wasn't fun. That middle section really drags when Aragorn gets swept yeah. over the cliff and it's like, oh no, I sure hope Aragorn, the king in the next movie, <laughs> survives to make it to become king in the next movie. Even even if you haven't read the books, like, you know Aragorn didn't die there. There's no way. Storytelling logic dictates we don't kill Aragorn here. We're not doing like a audience fake out psycho thing where we're killing, <sighs> yeah. It's lame. What do you think about Treebeard? Good job. I don't like him that much. I don't like Treebeard to begin with, so... No, I don't like Treebeard that much either, but it also feels like Peter Jackson doesn't like Treebeard and thinks he's boring and stupid, and that's kind of a bad look for the movie. Here's the boring and stupid character doing boring and stupid things. Also, it's another convoluted plot thing that doesn't make sense, where the Ents sit around and they decide we're not going to attack Isengard. And then Treebeard sees Isengard and he's like, all right, guys, let's attack. And they're all just ready to do it. (sighs) What they see is, I mean, be fair. What they see is a big empty space between them and Isengard where they expected to see a wood full of trees that they knew and loved and whatever. These guys are such morons that they didn't do a little research and development before they made their first plan. Like this is the first that they actually know how bad it is at Isengard. A little bird couldn't have told them, literally a little birdie couldn't fly over and tell Treebird, like, hey, things are bad at Isengard. It doesn't make any sense, Jake. It angers me. You know what else angers me? Wormtongue being painted in, like, white goth goth makeup and talking like this the whole time. Like, who is this guy? How did he ever worm his way into the castle? This guy is not a good spy. If you look evil and you have long, dirty fingernails and greasy rock star hair, you're not a good bat spy for the bad guys. Yep. He should look fairer and and talk fouler or whatever Frodo says. Yeah. Breaking news. Yeah. While we're recording this. 
one of the top trending things on Twitter right now is Black Panther 2. Can you guess why it's trending? There is a rumor about a casting decision. Did they let somebody go or hire somebody? Bringing somebody in potentially for a three-picture deal. She would begin by joining the cast of Black Panther 2. So it's a famous, I assume, African-American actress? Let's pick the most... Whoopi Goldberg. But update it from uh, the 90s to the 2000s. I thought you were going to say pick the oldest, most out-of-date reference. So I did. Uh, Okay, so it's a black actress known for drama or comedy? No. Michelle Obama. (laughs) That's not a bad pick. Is the person known for acting? Not primarily. Oprah, of course. I knew that would be the choice. Uh, all right, give me another hint. Well, this person is going to be playing, probably, it would appear, an action hero. Venus Williams or Serena? Nope. Sports figure? Nope. Entertainer? Yes. Talk show kind of thing? Nope. Not sports, not talk. TV? Nope. Movies? Not primarily, no. Politics? Nope. Author? We got a big category here, nope. Video games? Nope. Where are we located currently? Podcaster? No, but we are in a... Studio. Which is designed primarily for... Recording things. Specifically. Audio. And most specifically... Podcasts. <laughs> it wasn't designed... Oh, it's that... a say- oh, Beyonce. Yes. Good job. <laughs> wow. That took way too long. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Can she act? I don't know. People are freaked out. People are saying storm. I can't say I care for that at all. That's what they're saying. Uh, some people are disputing it or talking about how that can't be true because that would be an obviously dumb move. And so whatever the rumors are, maybe it's really just about doing the soundtrack or something. But that's not what the the most, most everything is like three film deal beginning Black Panther 2, using Black Panther 2 to launch her as a character. Ah, full confession. I don't like Beyonce. Yeah. I To me, when I think about Beyonce, I think about somebody who's about 25 years older than- They did a great job of casting plenty of talented, charismatic, beautiful black people in Black Panther. Yeah, I know, but I just don't think of Beyonce as being talented or charismatic at this point. Well, that's what I'm saying is like that you you can do that without pulling in. It almost feels like in some ways a betrayal because they. We didn't cast for name marquee value. We cast for talent. talent, And and then we use the platform of Marvel Marvel to promote all of this talent, right? Like into the spotlight. Mm -hmm. Like that was part of what, that was one of the best things about Black Panther 2. Yeah, it feels like a real indie cast. Yeah, of very talented people whose careers are going to be pushed forward by it and now beyonce feels like really lazy cast yeah beyonce feels like the equivalent of forrest whitaker in the first movie like you know, we just have this person here because people have heard of him right yeah don't care for it don't care for beyonce i think she should it's given that she's in her 40s she should put on some clothes that's yeah. my conservative old man ranting on a porch rant about beyonce I find her just kind of off-putting honestly yeah how old is she's 38 is she 38 okay I honestly assumed she was like 45 or something like that. But still, 38 is too old to 
regularly have me scroll past you on Netflix, Beyonce, in the state of dress that I regularly scroll past you on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Really, any age is too old, but you know what I mean. There's something particularly undignified about Beyonce doing what she does. Time to admit that you're middle-aged. That's what I think about Beyonce. <sighs> you are, well, maybe there'll be, maybe it's just a dumb rumor and it's taking over Twitter for no apparent reason. So we can be. hope for that. Marvel's not been dumb about these things. No, I mean, I and think they're going to be especially careful about Black Panther 2, especially given the current climate. So, yeah, they have the opportunity to either mess it up or knock it out of the park. Those are really the two things they can do with Black Panther 2. Well, I guess we should s- stop pretending to talk about Two Towers and call it a day. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other value Two Towers nutrition we can give to people. Anything else to say? I don't think so. I don't know. If I keep talking about things, I'll just keep reiterating that it just didn't work for me. Like I remember liking Theoden and really feeling for his whole journey. He didn't really work for me. He just felt erratic and like he was mad at Aragorn for no reason. Kind of a jerk. Aimer has, I, I like that guy when he plays McCoy in the Star Trek movies, but I like that guy in almost anything, but he's kind of a zero as Aimer. Just thinking through stuff with Aragorn and Arwen is really boring and shoehorned. I guess the nerds have been saying that now for 20 years, but in this particular case, I agree with them. Uh, Shield surfing. We haven't talked about shield surfing, Jake. Okay. We can't do a whole podcast on Two Towers without talking about the iconic scene from all of cinema. He he surfs the shield down uh, some stairs. It's really cool. He has to do it from now on every time he's on screen. Well, I'm just trying to, let's think. You've got Gene Kelly uh, singing in the rain. Mm-hmm. You've got Indiana Jones running from that boulder. Yep. You've got. Play it, Sam. Yeah, play it, Sam. What's number four? Because obviously number five is Legolas shield surfing. Number four is probably like uh, Harold Lloyd hanging from that clock or Charlie Chaplin skating at City Lights or. Uh, Maybe Citizen Kane walking past all those mirrors. Mm-hmm. These are the iconic moments of cinema. Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. <laughs> smoking her cigarette. Yeah, and her little cigarette holder. Yeah, Marilyn Monroe. The skirt skirt thing. Yeah. yeah, yep, yep, yep. Those would be the moments. I think we named all of them. John Wayne tipping his hat back. Tipping his hat back or maybe standing in that standing doorway. In the doorway and the searchers. The searchers, yeah. yeah. Mickey Mouse on Steamboat Willie whistling. Mm-hmm. As that steamboat goes down the river, all slightly beneath Legolas shield surfing. All garbage is what I wanted to say. Like those I mean, movies re- it rel- suck. Relatively, relatively speaking, when Legolas jumped on the screen, jumped on that shield, it was like, oh, okay, now I understand what cinema all was created cinema for. Cinema had been leading to this point, and nothing will be the same yeah, after like, this, and everything will be standing in this is this moment's shadow. Like from now on it sucks that yeah i will never have the joy and ecstasy that i feel watching this again like this is kind of actually ruined movies for me because they've gotten as good as possible as possible yeah like it's not gonna be better than this you can try to top it by having legolas shield surf again or surf elephant in a surf way. elephant surf you can bring maybe. him back you can bring him back in the hobbit just so that he can spider surf orc surf barrel surf Stone surf, uh, winged bat creature surf. But even then, I don't know that it'll live up to the original surfing. 
You know, the only thing that he's never surfed is a surfboard. Isn't that interesting? That's interesting. Somebody should, I mean, Jackson. Let's get the team back together. Let's, let's, yeah, let's do it. You got a mandate from the people, man. We need surfing Hobbiton. Or maybe just trace the story of- Surfing Haven's Gray. Surfing, surfing Haven's Gray. Come on, that was a good pull. That was a good pull. Yeah, trace that, trace the story of the human, like the, the random soldier at Helm's Deep who watches him and thinks, I could do something like this. And then this guy building the first surfboard. And and all of that inevitably leading to the Beach Boys. Yep. From Legolas to, to the, the Beach, Beach Boys. Boys. Make it happen. Make it happen. Well, just like you can't top that moment in cinema. You really can't top this moment in podcasting. <laughs> That's so true. So might as well be done. With yeah. all podcasts ever. Yeah. Warhorn Media is canceled. Thank you, Legolas. Thank you, Legolas. I'm not even going to give the credits. If I was, I would say that the show was produced by me, executive produced by you and me. But that's... I don't think I'll say any of that. No. Let's just say the two words that mean everything, that changed everything. Shield surfing. Hmm. So it begins. <laughs>